Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we delve into life and work of one of the most successful crime writers in the world, Val McDermid. She's joined by host Abir McCurgie to discuss her 35-year career and selling a staggering 18.5 million books around the world. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode explores the extraordinary life and work of the Scottish-born writer. Wow, look at this place. Look at you people. I feel like I need a gavel. <laughs> guilty or very guilty. That's what I'm trying to decide with this crowd in here. Just a hammer. Just a hammer, yes. I have to say, well, good, good afternoon and welcome to the Bradford Literature Festival. I'm Abir Mukherjee, uh, author of the Wyndham and Banerjee novels. But today mm. we are here to celebrate one of the most illustrious crime writers not just in Britain, but in the world. The queen of crime fiction. The one, the only, Val McDermott. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Val, is this the first time you have been uh, in a courtroom? No, in, in, in Bradford? No, 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 no. No, ah. no I, I, was, I was in Bradford many times when I was a journalist in Manchester. But also, I was, I think, what, the first, the first Bradford Literature Festival? Some years ago, they, they, they tried it out. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I was there for that. Right. Okay. So they tried it. They didn't try it on. They tried it out. They tried it out. Yes. Right. Good to know. But let's, let's, let's get to the beginning. Shall we, let's tell the audience some of the facts about, about Val McDermott. You have sold almost 20 million copies of books. And not all to members of my family. <laughs> I was going to say, you're not Asian, right? So, I can't say that in Bradford. I get into trouble, won't I? Yeah, sorry. I'm Asian. I can say it. It's allowed. We have big families and we're proud of it. Um, your work has been translated into 40, over 40 languages. Mm-hmm. What's your favourite tr- language that's been translated into? In terms of how it looks, the Japanese ones are very beautiful. Ah. They've got lovely covers and, and they've got the lovely lettering and... Nice quality paper. Oh, I've yeah. no idea what the content is like. <laughs> I look at them and I don't even know which book they are. So, but they but they are, nice. they're beautiful to they're look beautiful at. beautiful to look yeah. at. Um, you have published four, oh, 39 fiction novels. Yeah, this year's novel will be 39. 39. Yeah. See, I've done, done my homework. Done your homework, yeah. I used you to be an accountant. Count them off on your fingers. You yeah. Know. Um, you're, yeah, you're known for what? Wire in the Blood. Mm. Uh, the, you know, the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan series. Um, you also have the Kate Brannigan series, the Lindsay Gordon, journalist Lindsay Gordon series, um, and obviously Karen Pirry. Uh, and most recently, the series that we're going to be talking about tonight mainly uh, is the, new, the, the journalist Ali Burns series. Uh, we'll be talking about your new book, 1989, uh, but also the series in general. But um, you're not just a writer, are you? You are a pop star. 
And we'll be might, talking about I think that, that might be going just a wee bit too well, far. I don't know. You have played Glastonbury. Yes, that's true. So, I mean, you played it before Rick Astley. Is that right? <laughs> yeah? Yep. He's going to give up now. He has well, to, right? Oh. I'm sorry. They don't get any better, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but you are, you've, you're a playwright. You've written screenplays. And you've written a children's picture book. My Granny is a Pirate. Now, how many of you Val McDermott fans have My Granny is a Pirate? Ah, that's the die-hard fan right there, yeah. sitting right in the middle. It's got everything. Ah, you'll have to dedicate a book. Right, let's, let's, let's talk about your career as well. Tonight I want to talk about 1989, I want to talk about Ali Burns, but I want to talk about your career. Um, because to somebody like me, um, you're an inspiration. Um, and tell us how it started, because you come from a small town in the less popular parts, the east of Scotland, not the cool half where I'm from, the west of Scotland. Tell us about your upbringing and how you It doesn't you rain as much in our, in our it's half. True, it rains a lot in our part of the it country. It does. I say that, I live in Surrey now. I've got, <laughs> I've got Glaswegian self-loathing. Uh, but tell us, tell us how it all started. Well, I grew up in a uh, you know, working-class family in, in Kirkcaldy in Fife. Um, my granddads were both miners. My dad worked in the shipyard, then worked for the town council. Um, but my parents were both very bright, but were of a generation where they couldn't afford to go to the high school because their parents couldn't pay for the uniforms. Um, so they never actually realised their full potential. And they were absolutely determined that the doors that had been closed to them should be opened for me. So I was encouraged very much that education was the answer to give me a better life, better life chances. Um, and my mum thought the way to do this was through reading. And when I was, when I was wee, she would put me in the pushchair and wheel me across the council estate to the library and read me picture books like My Granny is a Pirate. Um, <laughs> and then when I was six, we moved house to live opposite the central library. And that became my home from home. I was there pretty much every night after school. I changed my library. So I could easily read two novels in, in a night. Um, and of course, back in those days, you could get four library books out at once. But because this was Presbyterian Scotland, two of them had to be non-fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, heaven for Fenge, yeah. you should have unmitigated pleasure. <laughs> so, or any pleasure. Yeah. So, so I, I ended up also reading a lot of non-fiction books that I probably wouldn't otherwise have read, you know, sort of history. Poetry and drama, for some reason, are classified as non-fiction, which isn't very kind to the dramatists or the poets, you know. Mm. Um, but I read all sorts of things, really. Um, particularly, I read the Chalet School books, it's a series of 50-odd girls' school stories set in Switzerland and Austria. And uh, the thing I loved about those books was that they were actually a genuine series. You know, it doesn't matter what order you read the Famous Five books in, it's still the same yeah. sempiternal summer and they say the, the same stupid things. You know, nobody ever says, we'd better not go into the dark cave by ourselves <laughs> because the last time we went into the dark cave, something really bad happened. <laughs> It's yeah. like, it's like Timmy lost an arm. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like they've got perpetual amnesia. <laughs> uh, but the, the Chalet School wasn't like that. It, it, each book covered a term or, or a year in the life of the school. So events had consequences. If you broke your leg tobogganing in one book, you were still limping three books later, you know. <laughs> and, and that was my first real, although I wouldn't have recognised it as such at the time, was my first introduction to proper series fiction where characters carry the weight of their past with them. <laughs> and... Also, it was like doing a 3G, 3D jigsaw because being library books, you could never read them in order. 
So you'd read yeah. book 27 and then it would be book 6, and then it would be book 43, and suddenly you'd go, that's why she's always like that. That's <laughs> where the eye patch came from. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but the, thing that, the thing that was really life-changing for me was that one of, the, one of the characters grows up to become a writer. Ah. And in one book, she gets a letter from her publisher. And so I'm reading away, it's on the right-hand page, about halfway down, there was a cheque in the envelope. <laughs> and it was like an epiphany. I thought, they get paid for this. <laughs> People get paid for just making stuff up. I could do that. I can tell lies. Oh, you, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> is that, that our a, politics, was it? <laughs> no, I, I decided that, that, that was, I was going to be a writer and that was so that. So how old were you when, you when you read this? Nine. Nine? And at that point, that set you on your journey. Yes, it set me on my journey of being laughed at by yeah, everybody in yeah. my family and everybody <laughs> in my class at school and everybody in my, my group at university. Well, let's, let's talk about that then. So how did your, your family react and, and how did these people react and, and what drove you to keep going? They just laughed at me because people like us don't be writers, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's, I mean, nobody in my family had ever done anything remotely artistic. Uh-huh. Mine was the first uh, generation where people went to university, mm-hmm. but my cousins all, all did sort of science things yeah. or medical things, and they just like, were outraged that I could get away with just making stuff up. Oh, well, it's, it's very... And reading books. It's very anti-Presbyterian, that, isn't it? You know, when you, when you grow up in, in the sort of fire and brimstone atmosphere of, of Scotland, mm. you need fire and brimstone because it's so bloody cold all the time, right? Yeah. Um, but, but you went through that, you, and despite... Because we have you know, what's, what we call tall poppy syndrome in mm. Scotland. Anybody who sort of sticks their head above a certain level or does something differently, you know, gets it metaphorically chopped off and sometimes physically in Glasgow. Um, but what, what drove you to keep going? What, what made you buck those trends? At what point did you realise that I can be so much more than the path that people expect me to follow? Well, I think it comes down to, um, to my dad, really. My dad was a great Burns man. Um, not, not setting fire to things, but uh, <laughs> Robert Burns, the poet. He was the, the lead tenor of the Bow Hill People's Burns Club concert party. Uh-huh. Uh, and so his life was very much uh, revolved around getting ready for Burns Night. So, and then there would be the sort of two-month period where he was out every night singing at a Burns supper. Uh, and he was, he was a great believer in, in, in the politics of Burns. A man's a man for all that. And I was brought up to believe that I was as good as anybody else. And that the only thing that stood between me and what I wanted to do and my ambitions was me. Um, so it was just, you know, if, if, if I didn't achieve something I set out to do, he said, well, you'll just have to try harder next time. Um, and that was, it, was, it was that sort of sense of, as I say, being as good as anybody else. So why should I not be a writer? Mm-hmm. Um, that I just was, and, you know, we, we've, got, we've got a couple of words in Fife that I've always clung to. There's a word gallus, which means sort of a bit, you know, flashy and a bit, you know, a bit of, a bit of yeah. bravado, a bit of bravado yeah. yeah. Uh, and another word, thrawn. And the nearest I think you can come to defining thrawn is bloody-minded uh, and determined. Uh, and that's what I was. I so was what's, what's the most the people said I couldn't do it. The more determined I was. What's the split? Are you? How much of you is gallus and how much of you is thrawn? There's more of me that's thrawn than gallus, ah. I think. <laughs> so I would like to be more gallus than thrawn. Well, let's, let's talk about, let's move it on a few years, because you, you were the first, as you say, in your family to go to university. Um, and with you, you know, you can't just go to any university, you had to go to Oxford. So what was that like, going from Fife, a wee mining town in Fife, to, you know, down to, down to that, that there, England, and, mm. and to Oxford? What was that like? 
It was, I think you'd have to say it was a culture shock. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Uh, what you hear now is what my partner calls my Radio 4 Scottish accent. <laughs> but I don't know, I'm five came where we talk like this, the Spurgs fly back was to keep the studio out the rain. Ken? Uh, and that's, who I, that's who I spoke when I went down to Oxford, Ken. Uh, and, and, and they're all looking at me going, who's Ken? Who's <laughs> this Ken she's talking to? And they did Ken what I was saying, Ken. Yeah. And that, so we've got uh, subtitles for the heart of Scottish yes. here. Um, and first, my first tutorial, I, I had to read out uh, an essay, uh -huh. and I started reading my essay, which was about uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins' Wreck of the Deutschland. Mm -hmm. um, and I was about two paragraphs, three paragraphs in, and my tutor stopped me and said, I'm most terribly sorry, <laughs> Miss McDermott, I haven't understood a word you've said. <laughs> Might you begin again, and, and perhaps more slowly this time? Oh. See, after that, she used to ask me to hand my essays in. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't just that... I, mean, I, I realised I had to learn to speak English in order yeah. to, to be understood. English, English. English, English. English, English. Well, sort of English, English. Yeah. Posh Scottish posh, English. Posh, posh, yes. Um, and and um, I also... I mean, it, it, it was, everything was different. The vegetables were different. Well, there were the, vegetables. There were vegetables, yeah. yeah. There were more than three vegetables, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I went, went out to an Italian restaurant in my first term um, and uh, we were all ordering things, and I, I looked at this menu, I didn't recognise anything on it except pizza, I saw pizza. Uh -huh. I know what a pizza is, I'll order a pizza. So I ordered a pizza, and this round thing arrived with tomato sauce and, and all sorts of things on it. And I said, I said Wait, excuse me, that's not a pizza. And he said, of course it's a pizza, this is, this is what pizza is. I said, no, 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 pizza's half moon-shaped and covered in batter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not deep-fried. <laughs> So I had, I, had, I had quite a lot of, of, of uh, difficulties to overcome, but on the other hand, I was determined that I was as good as anybody else yeah. there, that I, I didn't have a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. I genuinely thought I was there because I deserved to be. And it was up to them to sort themselves out and give me the keys to the kingdom. I think that's, that's, that is fascinating because, you know, we talk as writers of having imposter syndrome, and, and, and for me anyway, it doesn't apply just to writing. It applies to so much of my life of almost feeling like I am being allowed access to places. Maybe it's because of the fact that I'm the, kid, the child of immigrants. I always feel like I need to ask permission to be places. But you never felt that. You always felt the door is open. It's, well, it deserves to be open. I, I sometimes felt like the door deserves to be kicked open. Yeah. I, I was not... Uh, um, I always felt like an outsider. Uh -huh. And I still feel like an outsider so much of the time. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, really. I mean, you know, as, as one of my friends pointed out to me this week, you're firmly at the heart of the establishment, yeah. but I never feel like I am. I feel like I'm the one standing on the edge of you're the You're still crowd. kicking at the establishment. I'm still kicking at them, yeah. yeah. And quite right, somebody has to. Well, yes, well, I want to talk about this. I mean, I want to get to the books, but I want to talk about this idea of being an outsider, because a lot of writers, a lot of my favourite writers, a lot of the best writers, I think, feel like outsiders their entire life. Um, what do you think that gives to a writer? What, what, this, this perspective of being outside but inside? It gives you detachment, I think. You can write about things um, without that sense of obligation to whoever or whatever you're writing about, I think, much more readily. Um, and, and it gives you uh, the ability to write about people from the perspective of people who are not part of the mainstream. And I think that's also important for a writer. You have to be able to see beyond the obvious. Mm -hmm. um, or point out the obvious yes. that others don't. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I think it's... The, the most important bit, I think, is that sense of not being obligated. 
you know, it's like that thing of I have strenuously refused to accept an honour. I mean, partly because it says British Empire. Yeah. Um, the amount but, of times Boris was on the <laughs> yeah. But 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 more importantly, to me, it's if you take their baubles, you can't kick them in yeah. the balls. Yeah. It's not polite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's polite. I was to well brought up, you know. Yeah, yes. I will not take your baubles. I will just kick you in the balls. Yes, I think exactly. that should be the mo that's a Bradford motto there and there, isn't it? I like that. Um, I want to talk more about honours, but not now. Um, I want to let's talk about your, this new series. Let's talk about the Ali Burns series. I say new. This is the second book. The first one was out uh, last year. It was called 1979, and it follows uh, a young journalist called Ali Burns from uh, Scotland. Um, and it's quite autobiographical. There's elements of it. There's elements of you that I see in it. Before we talk about the new book, tell us a bit about Ali and, and your inspiration for writing this series. Well, Ali is a young journalist in, in Glasgow in 1979, and she's determined to become an investigative journalist. That's what she really wants to be. Uh, and she's also determined to be taken seriously in a man's world, being a young woman in, in that world where women were, were largely disregarded. Um, and I know this because I was a young woman reporter in Glasgow in, in 1979. Um, but Ali is not me. She's very emphatically not me for a start. I had a lot more fun in 1979 than she gets to have. <laughs> you know? I was young, free and single and I had money in my so, pocket. So if any of you remember this, you can ask questions later. You can ask her what fun she had in 1979. Um, so, yeah, but, but um, that's, that's really the starting point for mm -hmm. it. And, and the reason why I, I, I wrote, I started writing this, this sequence of novels was, was COVID. I uh, got to March 2020, and I'd just finished writing Still Life, the, the sixth Karen Perry novel. Um, and I didn't know what to do, because up till that point, all my novels had been set against the here and now, mm -hmm. and the, the world around me. And I couldn't write a novel in the here and now, because it was changing every day. Yeah. You know, every day, Nicola would get up and, and give her a piece about where we're up to today and what we're going to do tomorrow that's different, or what happened today that's terrible. Mm -hmm. And I had no sense of what this was going to be. Was this going to be the one that sees us off? How many people are going to die? How are we going to live like this? What's going to happen next? It was a place I felt I was standing on shifting sands like all of us were. It was frightening. Yeah. And I found it particularly frightening because in 2017, I'd written a series of radio plays called yeah. Resistance, which are about a virus. Uh, a, it's actually a bacterial disease that basically sees off humankind. Um, and so I'd, I'd spoken to a lot of scientists about this sort of disease and the vectors of disease. So I was particularly terrified, I think, because I understood what something like this could do about you know, the variations and, and different variants that suddenly change what the doctors are trying to do. So I, I was spending most of my days in, in a state of, 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 of extreme anxiety, I think I'd have to say, and as many of us were. Um, and so I thought, I have to write, because if I don't write, I'll, I'll just, you know, and did it take mad. you time to get into the, 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 the way of writing again? Was there a period when you couldn't write? Not really, no. I mean, the thing that, um, as soon as I realised what I had to do, that I had to, that I had to find somewhere to stand on solid ground, and that meant going into the past where I knew what had happened. Right. And I knew I could, I, I was, I was, I could set my feet down and think, this is, this is today, this is what was happening then. And trying to write that again without hindsight, trying to write it as if I was in the time. Um, and the, the other thing, um, I suppose, was, was um, my publisher keeps on at me about writing a memoir. 
I don't particularly want to write a memoir. I mean, there's lots of reasons why not. I mean, well, you've, you've got loads to go, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, I'm not won, finished. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, partly it's it's that thing of um, I, I didn't even really want to spend two years sitting staring at my own navel because I've got other stories to tell that are more interesting to me than my own. I mean, I think I'm quite boring, really. But um, she she doesn't know everything, right? <laughs> but I, I, I said I, I, also the other thing is a lot of people would have to die before I could tell the truth and not end up in the libel courts. <laughs> so, you know, I decided the memoir was probably not a good way to go. But I wanted to, I found a way really to, to, use, to use what I'd learned in the world of writing, of different kinds of writing over the years, to translate that into a, a quintet of novels. And I wanted to finish it in the last year of normal life, 2019. And so I went back in 10-year chunks, and that took me to 1979, which really made me rub my hands with glee, because 1979 was a good year to write about. Well, you had a lot of fun, apparently. I did have a yeah. lot of fun, but Ali's not getting to have fun. Um, you know, she Although can, she does in 1989. Which she does have more fun in yeah. 1989, yes. Um, I was just thinking, though, right, so idea for a novel, ladies and gentlemen, writer wants to write their memoirs, but has to murder a lot of people before she can do it. <laughs> yeah. What do you reckon? Yeah. 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 Do you want it or will I do it? I think, I think we can do it together. I'll do the donkey work. You come up with the inspiration. How about yeah. that? Okay, well, just put my name on it then. <laughs> that's fine. Because <laughs> that's what happens, that's isn't it, what these happens days? these days, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Lots of celebrities. Oh, um, just while we're on that, we were in a panel. I don't know if uh, any of you have heard uh, Stephanie Merritt. She was here yesterday. Mm -hmm. And she was here today. She was saying, what would you, I asked her, what would you do if you were a minister of culture? And she said, I would make celebrities, A, write their first book under a pen name, uh, and B, not allow any ghostwriting. Mm. And then if they survived, if, if the name was leaked, then I'd have them executed. <laughs> Which I think is very yeah, fair. I think that's very fair. What Doesn't would you do as Minister of Culture? What would be your... I'd actually support culture, support the arts, you know, yeah. make, it, make it possible for theatre companies to put on theatre productions and, and dance yeah. companies to put on amazing dance productions. You know, I saw recently the Barry Romberg did a, a thing about Peaky Blinders uh -huh. as the redemption of Tommy Shelby. It was gobsmacking. I'm not, a, I'm not, I, I don't speak dance. And I was completely blown away by this. That's the kind of thing we should be doing all yeah. the time. Everyone should be able to go and see things like that. It shouldn't be priced out of, of people's pockets. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Well, I, I would agree with that. I, but I still think that the first policy should be to exile Nadine Dorries to the Isle of Wight. Um, That's a bit harsh on without the Isle of Wight. Internet, without well, any internet. Rock all. Rock all, okay. That's harsh on seagulls, isn't it? Anyway. Um, let's, let's talk about 1989, because um, this is, this is oh. the follow-up to 1979, and to me it was a very joyous book. There's a lot happening. I shouldn't say it's joyous. There's a lot of hard grit there, and I'll talk about that. But you seem to be having a lot of fun writing this book, um, did you? Well, yeah, I, I guess, I, guess I, I did and I didn't. I mean, uh, there, was, there was... I enjoyed uh, following Ali's mm -hmm. life, I enjoyed following how Ali has developed and how she's grown and how she's actually learned to deal with disappointments as well as success. Um, but there were elements of this book that I found very hard to, well, to return yeah. to. Let, let's talk about that, because this book opens with uh, Ali at the funeral of the, or the, the, the ceremony marking the, the Lockerbie disaster. Um, and from there, we go quickly into the AIDS pandemic. Um, uh, and later on, we go to Hillsborough. Uh, and you, you were at uh, a few of those uh, events. You were reporting on it. Firstly, can you tell us 
what that was like for you at the time? Um, pretty much hellish. Mm. How old were you when you or just what, were you in your twenties? How old was I? I was um, I was in my early thirties. Right. Still very young to be mm -hmm. thrown into these sorts yep. of environments. I, I I spent a lot of time that year uh, in in the living rooms of people who were people who were grieving who had lost somebody they loved. It was uh, it was a hard year. Um, and I was at Hillsborough on the afternoon it happened. I was there within half an hour of, of it, well, within 40 minutes of it, it starting. And I was, I was in Lockerbie again the night it happened because they were on my patch and I was the Northern Bureau chief, so I had to be there. Um, and it was traumatic. It was traumatic, you know. Um, walking into that gymnasium where we really shouldn't have been and, and seeing, seeing the body bags. And, um, it's, it was that, that was the year that I decided I needed to get to journalism. Um, I have nothing but admiration for the people who could continue to do that. I mean, you know, I've, I've got friends like, like Alan Lithgow and Lise Doucette who, who go around the world covering terrible things, their wars and disasters, and they seem to be able to, to find a way to deal with that mm -hmm. uh, and, and not become basket cases. But I didn't think I could do it. I think, uh, to me, it seemed like you had to do one of two things. You either uh, took it into yourself and f f allowed yourself to completely empathise with these people's losses and their pain and their grief and their anger. Uh, and that did you damage in one way, it just drained you. Uh, and the, or you could build a wall and, and, um, and hide behind that wall and not let it into you at all. And that damages you in different ways. Yeah. And I looked around at a lot of the people that I worked with and I thought, I don't want to be you when I'm 50. And so I thought, I need, I need to be not doing yeah. this anymore. And, and, got, and, and my, my, you know, my bad or my weakness, but I just wasn't, it wasn't for me. I couldn't, well, well, I say, knew I couldn't survive it. You say weakness, but it's not weakness. I mean, these are traumatic events. You're a young woman without any counselling um, at that sort of time. And you're, you're in a world which is, you know, if the books are to believe, you know, the, the, the Ali is in a world dominated by men who A, don't even want her there, and B, have this extremely macho culture. Mm. Um, you know, what are you supposed to do in that environment? I mean, how did you cope with that environment? Um, I did my job better than the men, was the way to do it. Yeah. Serious was the only so way to you, do it. Yeah. The I usual way of the women. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was the only, and, and I had the very good uh, luck, or, or not, of having a very good capacity for drink. So I could match the guys drink for drink. In fact, some of them I could drink under the table, which earned me respect, which is a, a, a ridiculous and appalling that you earn respect, not by the brilliance of your reporting or the quality of your writing, but how, many, how much whiskey you can get through in an evening and still be standing. Yeah. But that's very much how it was. Um, and you say how it was. You accused me of drinking girls' whiskey once. Yeah, I did, yes. Because I, I prefer sherried whiskey rather than smoky, smoky whiskey. Yes, yes. So apparently I drink girls' whiskey. Ladies' whiskey, whiskey. Yeah, yeah. yes. So or, or breakfast whiskey, as we sometimes call I think it. <laughs> the misogyny, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. No. I don't drink like that anymore, <laughs> though. I mean, if I drank like that now, I probably would be dead, <laughs> as it were. Um, let, let's, talk, let's move on slightly. Let's talk about the AIDS epidemic, because that plays a big part uh, in this novel. Uh, and for me, it's one of the most powerful parts of this novel. Um, Ali is reporting on um, the wave of AIDS victims in Edinburgh, because Edinburgh was the AIDS capital yes. of Britain. Uh, Europe. Europe, and um, 
you know, a lot of these people weren't getting any care at all and, and were leaving Edinburgh because mm -hmm. of it. And you lived through those times, you were, you were close to it. Um, what was it like at that time? I mean, we, we remember it, but we probably weren't as close to Edinburgh as you were. No, I mean, I, well, I was working out of Manchester at the time, but I was aware of what was happening in, in, other, in other places because people would, would rock up in Manchester from Edinburgh talking about how, how dire it was there. But, I mean, you know, Manchester in many respects was, was not much better. It was just that nobody knew them there. Um, I mean, we had a chief constable in Manchester, some of you may remember, who once described uh, people with AIDS as swilling around in a cesspit of their own making. And that was the kind of attitude that you got from a lot of uh, public bodies, public figures. Um, you know, the, the, they, gave, the, the, they opened a, a, a hospital in, in Edinburgh dedicated to infectious, infectious diseases with uh, something like 45 beds, four of them for AIDS patients. You know, it, it was that kind of thing. Um, and I, f for me, it was doubly difficult because I was working for a tabloid newspaper. And well, I was also true. chair of the NUJ's Equality Council. So we would sit there and we'd formulate policy on how you write about this disease. And we'd distribute that to, to journalists and they would just ignore it and carry on writing well, the same homophobic, yeah. shouting at people a lot mostly. <laughs> Um, but, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things. You, 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 you speak up about it and you try and change people's minds and you try and change their minds story by story. And it doesn't always work. Um, but, I, I mean, some of us were, were willing to stand up to our news desks and, and have the argument. Um, and I think sometimes we change people's minds and sometimes we didn't. But you have to have the argument, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, that's how change starts, yeah. isn't it? By shouting. Yeah, yeah by shouting. Or yeah. by getting Princess Diana along to give them a hug. You know. mm. um, there's a character in this novel who plays a, a large part and, and I don't think I'm giving away any confidences to say that he may be modelled on a certain individual. Uh, there's a character called Ace Lockhart who uh, I think you know, has a daughter called Genevieve. Uh, and, and it might be modelled on a, a certain Robert Maxwell. Well, yeah, I, I, I did use my experience of working with Robert Maxwell mm -hmm. uh, in, in creating this character. I, I, was, I was mother of the chapel at Shop Stewart when, when Maxwell took over at Mirror Group, so I had a lot of direct negotiations with him uh, about redundancies and about working conditions and all that kind of thing. And the man was horrible. He was a bully. He was deeply, deeply unpleasant, but he could also be charming. When he chose to be charming, uh, he, he could be, you know, genial and, and very, very good with people. But if he wasn't in the mood for being very good with people, he was horrible. Is he a sociopath? Is that not the definition of a sociopath? Well, I don't know. Sociopath, psychopath, one or the other. <laughs> um, I mean, he was, I remember one meeting we were having, and, and he was... Uh, it was not long, It was probably about six months after he'd taken oh, over, uh -huh. and he'd promised when he took over that he was going to restore the level of, of regional editions that we were doing out of Manchester. Uh, we used to do nine, and then it was cut back to five, and he said he was going to put it back to nine. So we're in this meeting, and we're going through all the things that he'd promised to do, and he was, he was you know, I, and I said I would do this, and I've done this, and you should be grateful for what I've done for you. Um, and I said, just, just, I just ask when you're intending to restore the yeah. level of editions like you promised? And he got up out of his seat, and he was a big man. I mean, he was tall as well as fat. And he came around, and he, he came that close to me and said, are you calling me a liar? I mean... How do you react to that? I just said, no. Well, I mean, 
because I, I, I knew what would happen if I said yes. Yeah. I would, he would sack me. Yeah. He'd done it to other, he'd done it to other union officials. He'd done it to other people in the workplace. Mm. Um, and uh, frankly, I, I, I needed to pay the bills. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was like, okay, I'll just say, I'll just say yes. It's, it's the coward's way out. I mean, I'll just say no, rather. It's the coward's way out, but I'll keep my job. Sometimes, you've, you know, discretion is the better well, part of valour. Well, it was a bit scary, <laughs> to say. I mean, it was not, uh, it was not my finest hour, but, yeah. you know, I, I, he, he, he was... He unnerved people. He unnerved yeah. people. He was not a presence you wanted in the office. Well, it was... Uh, yeah, he, he comes across as this bully that just sort of bulldozed his way to whatever he wanted. Um, and, and I, think, I think we should talk about some of the happier things in this book. I'm going to pick up on some of the things that took me back, because it's, it's the little touches. The little touches. There's a point where you mentioned, you know, they tore their ring pools almost simultaneously off their cans. Now, and I hadn't thought about ring pools yeah. in 30 years. Yeah. What made you remember ring pools, huh? What is it? I just, I'm like summoning this up in my mind's eye and thinking when you'd sit down and you'd have to pull yeah. the wrinkles and you'd make, you'd make necklaces almost. You'd, you'd, make, <laughs> you'd, you'd, fix them, you'd fiddle them together so you've got chains of ring pools, you know, which and was sometimes quite disturbing the morning after. And t- t- <laughs> <laughs> yes. How much did I drink? It's like, yeah. Um, tell us about the research you did for this. Did you have to go back and, and look at the detail or was it all... Do you remember that night when we did this? And, and, and well, there was there was there was that element of it, but there was also um, you know sort of things like you, you know going online to check when ring pools became you oh, know yeah. snap pools and, um, and all that. So um, I I find that uh, one of there's there's several ways of doing this. Um, music is like a time machine. You know how yeah. often do you in, in in the shop or something comes on the radio in the car and you think oh yeah I remember that song I remember I was in such and such a bar or I remember I was kissing so and so I was going out with somebody. This or is 1979 again, yeah. Aye, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you know we all find that, that, that a particular song a particular tune just snaps us back to where we were when that was a hit or when we first heard it. So that's one of the ways that I, I, I find quite handy to get back into the mood of, of the time. But local papers are really good as well, um, because they have not just got the stories in them. We all remember the big historic events of the time, but what we don't remember are the wee stories that we're sitting in, 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 the, in the pub talking about or discussing over dinner or standing at the bus or saying, did you see that thing on the news last night? Those are the things that we don't really remember, but they find their way into the papers, and they're often quite a, a handy hook to hang things on. Um, and, and, but they're also very, very good for what was in the CNA sale you look at me and think, did, ah. I, did I really wear that blouse? <laughs> you know, and how much things cost, how much, yeah. it, how much it was for, for a, 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 bit of a block of cheddar cheese, how much it was for a can of lager, how much it was for a three-piece sweet. I mean, I swear to God, I found my £99 sweet in an advert when I was looking through one of the newspapers. And it was, it was, I thought, did I really sit on that sofa? I don't think so. <laughs> Why, well, I still sat on the floor, you know. <laughs> But all that stuff is, is, is it's the texture of the times. Uh-huh. It reminds you of, of what it was like, what it felt like. And then you look at what was on the telly, yeah. you know, when there was only two channels. Radio you know, Times, so. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about music, because at the back of this book and at the back of, of 1979, you have a playlist. You have Ali Burns' playlist. Yes, uh, and it's from Ali Burns' playlist, not my yeah, playlist. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, why is it Ali Burns and not yours? And, and how did you decide? how do you decide what she likes and what you, as opposed to what you like? Look, she's different from me. She's oh. not me. No, but how do you decide that's what she would like? 
Because I go, I mean, you still go through, you go through the great lists on, got on uh-huh. Spotify and on Wikipedia for what was a hit at the time. You think Ali would like that? I'm not always so keen. Plus, her and, her and Rona were, were big into going out dancing yes, and clubbing yeah. uh-huh. more than I was. I mean, I did dance the end from time to time, but they are, you know, avid out on the town girls on a Saturday night. So there's things in there that I, you know, I, I wouldn't particularly have have danced to or known particularly well. So I'm not going to ask you about your top 40, but give us five tracks from that era that you would like. I can't remember what's in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there would be Blondie would be in there, definitely. Uh-huh. Blondie would be in there, probably Alison Moye, probably uh, Eurythmics. Yeah, well, there's a lot of Eurythmics in yeah. this, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, well, yes, she's, she's big into Eurythmics. Yeah. Um, Deacon Blue. Yes, I, I was very upset as a Hue and Cry fan. There was no Hue and Cry well, in that list. Um, take it up with Ali. Well, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> take it up with Ali. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. Um, now, I'm going to ask you are you psychic? No. Are you sure? I'm positive. When did you write this book? When did I write this book? Yeah. Um, well, it came out last year. Yeah, so, so it's I over a year it, old. I wrote it um, in the first three months of. Last year. Because there there's a section in this book where you talk about a gentleman called Timmy Tarleton, who is gay. He's a TV guy who's gay and having a relationship with a boyfriend who's more than uh, a couple dozen years younger. <laughs> who is a runner, yes. A runner on the show. What can I say? Life in the... Yeah. <laughs> It's quite, it's quite eerie when life imitates art. It happens, it happens more than I think. Do you know what? In, in, in about 50 years' time or 100 years' time, people are going to be you know, perusing the works of Val McDermott like Nostradamus, looking for these <laughs> trains going, Val said it, Val yeah. said it first. Yeah. Uh, looking for no. meaning. I have no inside information uh, on that one. Okay. Well, I just, I mean, it was the kind of story that, that uh, my news editor would have drooled over when I was still working in newspapers. Well, yeah. Did you ever, did you ever come across stories like that and break them? Not, not, not salacious gossip, but were there big stories that you broke? Um, there were one or two. Uh, yeah. what's, what, what story are you most proud of that you did? That's always a tough, a tough question. I did a series... Um, back in the mid-80s about women in prison. Um, and there was, some, um, like there was some clickbait stuff in there, but there was also some very serious stuff about the number of women who were in prison with mental health problems, the number of women who were in prison for crimes for which men got non-custodial sentences. Um, and so that was, I, I thought that was an important story to do. But we had, because it was a tabloid, we had to have it t- yeah. teased in with other things as well. But I was proud of doing that work. Um, some other stuff that uh, the, the frustration sometimes of working on an investigation for months that didn't see the light of day because the lawyers bottled it. Um, and I, and it's, I remember one, one story that I worked on for about six months with a team of 10 female freelancers about um, a, a pregnancy advisory clinic uh, that were sending quite a high percentage of the people who walked through their doors for abortions. And they were sending them to a clinic that was owned by the husband of the woman who owned the pregnancy advisory clinic. And it was quite clear to us in the course of our investigations that women were being sent for abortions who weren't actually pregnant. 
So they just be put under the anesthesia, given a quick DNC, and off they go. Um, and we worked on that for six months. Um, some of the, the women I was working with got as far as being in the gowns about to go down for surgery before they actually said, I'm not going through with this, I'm not doing it. Um, and at the end, the, the lawyers said, we can't run this because we'll be taking on, there's, there's doctors involved in this, we'll be taking on the, the doctors, lawyers, um, we'll, we'll, we'll tied up in court with this for the next 10 years, we're not doing it. So, that was a, that was one that uh, was really hard not to do, not to yeah. write. I mean, it was written, but it never got published. You, you seem to to be driven by this quest for for justice in, in in you know throughout your career and throughout your writing as well. Um, how important is that? To you? I mean, is it what drives you? Is it one of the things that drives you? It is one of the things that, that drives me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that. Um, the one thing that makes me most angry is, yeah. is in, injustice and unfairness uh, in, in general yeah. and around us. Uh, and, you know, there's plenty to go at. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you... Um, I'm going to ask you just uh, about something else. Now. I'm going to ask you about your career as a pop star. How did that come about? Well, as is so often the way with these things, it's, it was about drink. <laughs> um, but not in this instance, me drinking. Uh, yeah. um, Mark Billingham and uh, Stuart Neville and Doug Johnson were at an American crime fiction convention in New Orleans. And they went to an event at the House of Games. Uh, house, not House of Games, the House of Blues. House of Blues. House of Blues, the famous House of Blues. Thinking and of Richard Osman again. Thinking You've got to stop thinking about Richard Osman. Well, I can't help it. I can't help it. He's just so lovely. Um, but they went to the House of Blues and the house band was really rubbish. And then it was, it was open mic. And people were complaining about how awful the house band were. And somebody said, well, the Brits are here. They, see if they can do any better. And the three of them sort of like, you know, got their heads together, yeah. worked out three numbers they could do off the top of their head and went up and did them. And somebody put this on YouTube. Uh, and uh, the guy who did some of the programming at the Edinburgh Book Festival r rang up Mark and said, I hear you've got a band. I'm going to book you for the Unbound section at the Book Festival. <laughs> and so the, Mark's going... <laughs> We've got three songs, three guys. So um, they, they had a quick scrabble around, and, and both Mark and Doug had done stuff with me uh, singing. So Mark rang up and said, "You can sing," and mm -hmm. yeah, I can, I can sing. And uh, Doug, Doug could drum. And uh, uh, Luca Vesti, we knew, had been in bands oh, over the years. Oh, he's a phenomenal guitarist. Yeah. If you ever hear him sing Britney Spears, "Hit Me Baby One More Time," uh, you have to there'll come, be tears in your eyes. You have to come and see the band. Yeah. We do, we're now doing full Britney. Ah, oh, there you full are. Full Britney with, with the, the, the big big guitars, and I play bass. Ah. Because Luca's busy singing, you know. Oh. And he can't even bless him singing play bass <laughs> at the same time. Uh, and so yeah, we got Luca up to play bass, uh, and then uh, that w that was the core of the band. And we got oh. together to have a rehearsal in Liverpool, and we, we sorted out some songs that we could sing. Um, we decided right from the start we were going to do cover versions of songs about crime and murder uh -huh. because bands mostly break up over musical differences, which is like, I've written this great song. And everybody else goes, no, it's shite. <laughs> and, it's a bit so, like my novels. <laughs> <laughs> so we, 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 we decided we were going to do cover versions um, and we thought it might be quite an idea to have other people to come up occasionally and do guest numbers with us. So we got Chris Brookmeyer to come along and he was going to do one number with us, he was going to do Werewolves of London. And he came along to rehearsal and he was, he was, he was good, he did a good job. But he you're in. He, no, no, we, we didn't say you're in. We'll say you'll let you do, we'll let you do Werewolves of London. But Chris is sneaky. 
So he turned up at the next rehearsal, having learned the harmonies on all the songs <laughs> that we do, <laughs> and he started to teach himself guitar. Oh, he didn't know He before. didn't play guitar before, he, and now he plays lead guitar on some numbers. He's absolutely committed. When Chris does something, he does it wholeheartedly. Just ask his wife yeah. how many hours a day he spends practicing his guitar. Um, so now he's, he's you know, guitarist so, on the so band, he, he singer on the band. He wedged his way in. He there. basically hammered the wedge in, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, so we ended up with six-piece band, wow. the fun-loving crime writers, and we mostly end up playing book uh, festivals because festival organisers like it because they get a twofer. You yeah. know, they get a book event and they get the band. Yeah. And you're uh, very good, but it's not just book festivals. No, we have done Glastonbury, yeah. did Cornbury as well. Did that. you ever think that you no. would play Glastonbury? No. I did not think for a moment yeah. I was going to spend my 60s in a band with six or five guys. <laughs> Well, 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 let's look at that. I think that's, yeah. that's an interesting point to take stock. Um, we've talked about books of the past. You've looked at different things in the past. What is, when you look back, what are the things you're happiest with? What are you proudest of? I know you've got a long way to go. We're going to talk about that. Mm. But looking back at this milestone, yeah, <laughs> 20 million books, you yeah, know, well, what do you look well, back on and you think, that was brilliant. I never thought I'd get the chance to do that or I'm proud of this. Well, it's, you know, a long time ago, somebody asked me, I think somebody was doing one of those features that magazines do from time to time, say, to sum up your, your life in six words, you know. Ah. And my, my six was, they said I couldn't do it. Ah. Um, that's kind of been my, my motto. Um, and I think I, the thing I used to be really proud of was, was being an, made an honorary fellow of my old college at Oxford at St Hilda's. Mm -hmm. You know, I was the first person they'd ever taken from a Scottish state school. Um, and sort of, again, I sort of elbowed my way in. You know, they said to me, we've never taken anyone from a Scottish state school before. I said, well, it's about time you started. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Need them in the balls, literally, no, no, figuratively. No, no. They didn't have balls, it was ah. a ladies' college. Oh, it was a ladies' college, sorry. Well, I've only had May balls, you know. But, um, so I, I, when they made me an honorary fellow, I thought that was probably the, the, the top oh. job. But then this week, I was just given an honorary doctorate by the whole oh. university. Um, you, you know, sort of. And that's, a, that's an honour worth having because that's chosen by your peers. And not by Boris Johnson. Indeed, <laughs> well, yes. Um, so that was, that was really uh, something special this week. It involved I think, three days of pomp and circumstance. And mm -hmm. There's this thing we have to do called Lord Crewe's benefaction. So you go out, it's, it's like a morning thing, and uh -huh. you get champagne and peaches and strawberries. Did you say, that's not peaches and strawberries? I don't see any batter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So what does the future hold? What's coming up next? Mere books. Mere books? Mere books. Eh? Tell uh, us a wee bit about these books. There's a new Karen Piri out in the autumn called mm -hmm. Past Lying. Okay. Um, and there'll be a new Karen Piri series next year. Right. So, a new series? Yes. Ah. So um, that'll, be, that'll be fun. Lauren and I will get her, get her bum bag on again. Ah. And uh, we'll see another one of those. And it's, it's, they're doing um, A Darker Domain, which is partly set in Tuscany. So obviously I'm going to have to make a lot of set visits. Yes, research, research. research absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then it'll be Do nice. you need someone to carry your bags? No. Oh. <laughs> I've got someone for that. Yeah. <laughs> and next year it'll be 1999. So I'm, I'm yeah. researching that at the moment and talking to people and getting a sense of what the through line is going to be. I know kind of what the things are that happened in 1999, but you, there's got to be a, I've got to find the... I've got to find the murder in it, you know, and this, this well, story for we, that. We leave the end of this book with, um, with Ali, well, not at the end, but she, she does question, as you did, you know, um, 
how she can keep dealing with these emotional traumas. And, and I, for one, am sort of quite interested to see where she goes next. Mm. Uh, hopefully there'll be some surprises. I'm sure there will be surprises. I think there'll be some, quite a lot of surprises. Mm. I mean, it's going to be quite a hard road for, for both of them in the next book. But ah. they'll get there. So I'm going to open the floor. Uh, questions to the floor. Who would like to ask Val the first question? They've all gone shy now. All gone shy. So if, if you don't put your hands up, we'll yeah. start picking on yeah, you and asking you questions. Ah, you know? There we are. Who won the FA Cup in 1963? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping to write my own my first book. Um, I don't know where to start. So, what would be your advice to aspiring writers? Good question. What would be your advice? Well, it depends what, what bit you're not quite sure about yet. About how you start. I mean, do you know what your story is? Oh, just a second, there's a mic back. <laughs> don't tell us, because somebody will steal it. <laughs> we'll steal it. Um, so my, my granddad's, um, he spent quite a bit of time in jail <laughs> for various oh. things. Um, so I would like to write something about his stories. Basically. That's fine. So if you know where the story is, that's the first issue. Because really. um, I always think to clarify story, a good thing is to tell it like you would tell it to your pals in the pub. But in terms of um, discipline and doing it, Yep, you, you, you should be hoping to write it. You should be planning to write it. And I always think that one of the things to do is to find some time in your, in your, in your life to ring fence. A bit of time, could be a bit of time every day, could be a bit of time every week. I wrote my first four books on Monday afternoons because Sunday was my day off and Monday was my day off and my friends were all at their work on a Monday uh, and I could work on Monday afternoon without interruptions. And I'd, I'd, every Monday afternoon, 2 o'clock till 7 o'clock was my writing time. Didn't answer the phone, didn't, didn't, didn't answer the door. Um, it was the day bef years before um, internet and all that sort of nonsense to, to distract you. And all week I'd be planning what I was going to do in that chunk of time. And I'd be thinking about what I'd done the week before that needed to be rewritten and revised. And actually, it, it turned into a very productive process. So, um, I guess if find a time that works for you. Uh, I know some people that get up at five o'clock in the morning to do two hours before the kids get up. I mean, that would kill me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't do that. But I think if you, if, you, if you take that time and ring fence it and tell everybody in your life, this is my writing time, do not speak to me, that's a good place to start. Um, it's amazing how the, the pages pile up. And switch off your phone. <laughs> Seriously, the amount of time you lose on Twitter as a writer. Have you, are you still on Twitter? I am, but I don't do I'm very much I'm trying to get days. off it, but it just drags me back in. I, I had to go on Insta, because oh, my, yeah. my son went off to Spain and did the Camino, you know, the, the, the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, uh -huh. and insisted on cover, sending out every day on, on Instagram. Yeah. So I had to join Insta. You joined TikTok yet? No, I'm oh. no dancing. Well, I was thinking, I, <laughs> yeah, just the thought of TikTok puts my back out. Yeah. Yeah. Does, does that help? No TikTok? Uh, although, no, you could get away with TikTok because you're still young. Millennials. No, no dancing. Yeah. No dancing. Let's have another question. Hi. Ah, um, there we are. Got a quick question um, for Val. How did you feel about uh, Karen Peary's appearance on the te televi te television well, being I thought, different to your, yours? It's always going to be different. Um, it's always going to be different. It's, it, it doesn't matter how... How, what, how much say you have in casting or anything like that, they're always going to be different from what's in your head. When you read the book, you see a different Karen Perry to the one that's in my head. 
we all see a different character in our heads because mm. we, are, we, we put onto it all the things that have made us the people we are. We, we reflect our own lives, our own experience with how we envisage the characters in the books. I thought that Lauren Lyle did not look anything like the Karen Perry in my head, but I thought that she completely embodied Karen. I mean, she felt to me like the essence of Karen. I thought she did a great job. Uh, I'm very glad for her to continue. Uh, and I mean, it was, it was with, when I did Wild in the Blood, the only person that looked remotely like they did in my head was, was actually Robson Green as Tony Hill, who looked very like the Tony Hill in my head. Um, but everybody else, not. So you just have to live with that. I mean, the, the whole, when, when you agree to adaptation, you know right from the start that what's going to end up on the screen is going to be different from what you wrote because the way of telling stories is different. I always cleave to what uh, um, Elmore Leonard said, and somebody said to him, how do you feel about what Hollywood's done to your books? And he said, Hollywood hasn't done anything to my books. They're still there on the shelf, exactly the way I wrote them. And that's the thing about books are interactive. When you read one of my books or, or one of Abier's books, anybody's books, you see it through your eyes, through the lens of your own experience of the world. Uh, and so it's, that's different from everybody else's. And that's why books are so marvelous, because they've got that interactivity. Okay. It's not like films and television kind of spoon feeds us with what yeah. we're supposed to think and feel. Still surprised by your Robson Green fetish here, though. It's that not a fetish. It's just like, <laughs> he looks like the Tony Hill in my head. I know. You know? Well, he did back then. It, uh, well, not yeah, so much yeah, now. Yeah. Tony's fine. Still, he's still young. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hi, I was just wondering, do you ever scare yourself with your ability to be able to come up with such gruesome murders? Oh, good question. Well, I don't scare myself because I'm in control. No, when I finish my work at the end of the day, nobody gets dead before morning, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I, when I'm writing a, a scene that involves violence, for example, I, I, I think very carefully that I stay on the right line of telling the reader what they need to know, what they need to see, what they need to experience to get their own imagination working. Um, and so, I, as I say, I, I try to judge the line where that is and stay on the right side of that line. But other people's books scare me because I'm not in control. I don't know what's going to happen next. So sometimes, you know, other people uh, give me nightmares, but my own books don't because I'm the boss. I, I have my wife, Jenny reads the first, is the first reader for me, and she'll sometimes look at me and goes, how did you get up, come up with that? Is that she's worried about the person she married <laughs> because she won't go on a cruise with me because I think I told her that the best place to kill someone is on the ocean. Yeah. So it saved me a bit of money, but, um, but yeah. It's a funny one. Uh, another good place is Southern California on a Saturday night because the cops are so busy that anything they can write off as accident, they will. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I can tell her that and then we won't need to do LA. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, you lived in various places, uh, Northumberland, uh, Manchester Way, uh, Edinburgh, um, Oxford, obviously, for a period. Uh, do you have a favourite place? I know you're looking at doing a bit of work now in Tuscany, did you say? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, for instance, I mean, one of my favourite series revolves around Bradfield. Uh, peculiar, really, that we're now in Bradford. Yeah. Uh, where did Bradfield come from? Bradfield happened because I was writing The Mermaid Singing when I was living in Manchester and James Anderton was the chief constable and I knew when I started writing the book that it was going to be critical of the police and I didn't want to find myself in a situation where uh, I got arrested every time I drove my car out the drive 
Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily paranoia where Anderton was concerned. And so I thought, I have to put this in a fictitious city where I'm not going to get any blowback from it. I think in some ways, if I'd known it was going to be a series, when I wrote Merriman's Singing, I thought it was a standalone. If I'd known it was going to be a series, I might have put it in a, 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 a real place. Because writing about a fictitious place sometimes feels like you're, you're, you're yeah, kind of balancing tough. on lily pads, yeah. you know. Um, but it has its uses as well, because whenever you want something, you can just put it where you want it to be. So I, 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 need, a, I need a Premier League football team, I'll just drop one in here, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where it came from. But I do like writing against real backgrounds. Um, <clears throat> and I think probably my, my, my favourite favorite place is, is, is back in Fife where I grew up. But along the coast from there in, in the East Nuke of Fife, the, the fishing villages of the East Nuke is, is where I feel uh, most at home. Looking at, out, out of the sea. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's the, that's yeah my the partner place. goes out kayaking you know, and, and plays with the seals, but I just stay at home and look at the sea. <laughs> and the dolphins. Dolphins? Dolphins. Oh, Sometimes we get the whale. Oh. <laughs> Hi, um, I just wanted to ask, <clears throat> you're in charge of your books, so is there a writer out there whose books you're reading and you think, oh my God, what are they smoking, or is it something that scares you about their writing and you can't put the book down, you can't, you know, you've got to turn that page? There are, there are, there are a few writers like that, yeah. I think one of the things, though, and I don't know if you find this, is as a writer, you become a much more critical reader. Yeah, I find you, it very difficult to read for pleasure these yeah. days because you're you're analysing. Yeah, you're going like I would. I'm, I'm never going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, wow, oh, this is done so well. You're yeah, looking I'm gonna, at the I'm going to steal that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do a lot so, of that. So there's, there's, it's a lot um, harder in a way to 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 have that that complete immersion. Yeah. It happens. You know, it'll happen maybe half a dozen times in a year that you'll just get completely sucked into something, and it's not always crime fiction. Yeah. Um, and I mean, for me, there's one writer whose books always, as soon as they come through the door, that's it. Um, don't speak to me for the next 48 hours. Al Ali Smith, right. Scottish yeah, writer, yeah. novelist, extraordinary imagination, yeah. and I just, I just love her work. And she's, she's somebody who, when I get to the end of the book, I want to go back to the beginning and read it again. But there's, there's just, there are so many really terrific books out there. I just, I've just finished reading Barbara Kingsolver's De Demon Copperhead. Which I thought was wonderful, just such an extraordinary book. Yes, it's, it's, it's a reworking, I suppose, of the ideas that are in, in, in David Copperfield. But mm -hmm. she she does it with such passion and and such anger and such beautiful prose. Mm -hmm. So it's there's lots of really really good stuff out there. Do you read and, for prose now, or is it just too plot, or, or is it? A I've always read for prose. I always, yeah. I, I was, I mean, you know, when, I've, for twenty years now, I've done the New Blood panel at Harrogate. Yeah where I get to select four writers whose work I really enjoy with their debut novels. Well, I was, I was like, honoured. I mean, you started my career being on your panel. Well, You've got but, a lot to answer for. <laughs> but, but one of the things I'm always looking for there, was I've always been looking for there, is voice. The ability to write a good sentence, the ability to, to say something in a way that feels fresh to me. Um, so often you'll start, you'll, you start reading a book and it might have a great plot, it might have even interesting characters, but the prose is like square wheels. Yeah. And you just, I can't read this. It's just unreadable. But that. we're not going to talk any more about celebrities. Well, I was, going to, I was trying to not say anything at that point. Um, I think we've got time for, for another question. Let's have, let's have 
Let's have one more question because I think we're we're pretty much at. Let's, let's someone have, at so the back. Oh. If you can shout you can very shout. loudly from Get the balcony. Get down to the front and shout. Stand up and project. <laughs> yes, like an actor. I've been asked about the experience of translation, how how that. Uh, how that works in practice, how much consultation I get, and how do we deal with cultural issues. Yeah. Um, the answer is it, it varies very much from language to language, and sometimes, sometimes it's, it is almost stereotypical. You know, the, the Japanese, for example, always, they always email me about police ranks. What is this rank in relation to this? And, and they, want, they, want, they want to know exactly where everybody is in the social hierarchy. Um, the Swedes like, like, uh, they like a lot of cultural information. What is a TARDIS? <laughs> um, and the, Ger the Germans will generally uh, pick me up on, on uh, idiom that right. they don't, they don't recognise. The French leave out any jokes they don't get. <laughs> um, and I've no idea about most of the other ones, because most of them don't bother to get in touch. They just go oh, their own yeah. sweet way. So, I mean, there could be anything, really. Yeah. Um, you just have to trust. Uh, sometimes, yeah. though, uh, even with a really good translator, and in Germany I've been very well served by my translators, sometimes things just, just slip through. Um, and in a book I wrote called A Place of Execution, which is set mostly in the 1960s, it's about the disappearance of a teenage girl, and the, the cop is searching her bedroom to see if there's any clues to what's happened to her there. Uh, and he, he opens a drawer and he finds a sanitary belt and some towels. In the German translation, the translator had made a mistake and translated the word for bath towels. <laughs> so obviously in Germany they have very heavy periods. <laughs> That's a serious one. Yeah. Oh my word! And on that note, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't really don't want to end here. It feels wrong. I am very upset that none of you asked her about 1979 and what happened. Eh? We'll save that for next time, shall we? we? What happened in that year that you just enjoyed so much? Um, ladies and gentlemen, no, no. thank you for being a wonderful audience and thank you to, our, to the one and only Val McDermott. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.